There is a television show. Uh, the description is this. It says, discover multi-million dollar scams that build unimaginable wealth. Go to places where devious frauds feed deviant desires and witness the fatal flaws that bring criminals to justice. This show takes you deep inside shocking true stories of brazen con artists who thrive on stealing fortunes, ruining, and even taking lives. In-depth reporting exposes the devastating effects greed has on victims, bringing you up close to heartless villains living large on other people's life savings. Some people will do anything for money. With evil like this, no one is safe. Now, this, this show... This might, you might wonder, what in the world is this? This show has been, if it fulfills this contract that it's in right now, it will have been on the air longer than MASH, Dragnet, Seinfeld, The Waltons, Hawaii Five O, Andy Griffith, The Cosby Show. This is in 12 years. This show is American Greed. American Greed. Believe it or not, there's a show, American Greed, and it's a very popular show. You know, we don't watch a lot of television in my house. But the other night, I watched American Greed. Uh, fascinating uh, a show. Um, it included Hasidic Jewish rabbis, believe it or not. Now, uh, just so you understand, in Judaism, three main branches of Judaism today, uh, there is the re- Reformed Jews. This is what some people might say are the most liberals. Uh, these guys really living in the world. Okay. Then you got the conservative Jews in the middle, and they kind of like are into the world, living in the world, but they want to apply scripture as well. It's conservative Jews. And then you've got the Orthodox Jews who are interested in applying scripture, not so interested in the world. Now, in the Orthodox Jewish section, far right-wing Orthodox Jewish uh, sect is the Hasidic Jews. These are the folk, the guys that wear the big, white, black, puffy hats, you know, and they've got the side locks that curly, and they've got the beards that are are, uh, unkempt, and they've got their long black coats. These are Hasidic Jews. And the Hasidic Jews believe that we keep the law, but that we even go beyond on the law. They are the most pious, the most dedicated, the most committed to uh, Old Testament godliness that there can be. I mean, the Hasidic Jews, this is, as, this is as intense, as pious as you get. Well, 2009, there was a Hasidic Jewish rabbi in New Jersey who was caught by doing some Ponzi scheme, I think. So he agrees with the, with the uh, local law enforcement to go undercover. So he's doing, he's in this sting operation for two years, right? He's wearing a, a mic the whole time he's doing this little camera. By the time he's done, they, they arrest 50, uh, most of them, Hasidic Jewish rabbis who are involved in a very sophisticated, very elaborate money laundering international scheme. And some of these Hasidic Jewish rabbis involved in uh, the sale of illegal human organs, you know, where they would get some poor person off the street or somebody from a different country and say, hey, we'll give you 25000 for your kidney, and then they'll sell it on the black market for 150 Well, at the end of the show... When, you, when you're watching these, these uh, Hasidic Jewish rabbis in their full 
hyper-pious garb. These, these, these folk who are the epitome of, of devotion, and you're watching rabbi after rabbi after rabbi after rabbi after rabbi with handcuffs being brought in because of their money laundering schemes, because of their illegal activity to make money. It was really quite unsettling. And, and the detective that they interviewed throughout this show who was kind of explaining what was going on, at the very end, he's, I mean, he was very detective-esque the whole show and kind of like nothing rattles him and this is just the way it is and blah, 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 blah. Very good communicator. But at the end, his last words of the show, he says, uh, you know, we expect corruption in our politicians. He says, and then his countenance changes. And his tone changes, and it's like he gets human, and he's saddened and disillusioned. And he says, but when this level of corruption is found in the leaders of the faith community, it's just very hard. And it was, it was just a dagger in the heart to, to listen and to watch, watch this. This idea of, of, of how, I'm guessing most of these guys, when they started off as rabbis, they probably, uh, especially that level of devotion and the commitment to live that kind of life, they probably so I really want to teach the Torah to the people and help them understand the word of God. So what happened? Several years uh, into Jesus' ministry, a couple of years into his ministry, an individual comes to him, and the guy says, uh, Jesus I know the word of God. And, and the guy did. And he says, and not only that, but Jesus, I, I want to apply the word of God to my life. And so I'm checking it out. I'm figuring out how to apply it. And my life is changing based on the word of God. And it was. And the guy says, and Jesus, I really, really want to know God. And I want to be with him forever. And I want to, to be where he is. And I think he did. And the guy says, and, and Jesus, I will do whatever it takes to get there. And he would, almost. Because Jesus, because he's Jesus, sees the one thing that's keeping this guy from God, that's keeping this guy from forgiveness and grace, that's keeping this guy from what he's thirsting for. And Jesus says, you know, you know the, the heart is a funny thing. It only has room for one God. And right now in your heart, a golden idol is there. It's Your God is money. And God wants to fill it, but you have to take that idol out, make room, and he'll be right in. He'll take care of it. And the scripture says that this man walks away sad because he didn't want to give that up. I think that, that James... Today in the passage before us, James is thinking about his big brother Jesus and what he went through there and the different other times he referred to money. And James puts an incredibly difficult text before us this morning. Not difficult to understand, but difficult emotionally. You need to know, it's not a pet passage I would have chosen, to, I'm just going to preach on this passage, uh, that's the good thing, I suppose, in going through a, a book like this. We take what's right there. But James is all about spiritual maturity. And James knows that the greatest rival for our soul is money. 
And therefore, if the greatest competitor for our soul is money, then probably the greatest barometer for our faith is how we use money. And so James addresses these people with just just uh, straight-up conversation. So much, it's just a little bit offensive. And so this morning, as we go through this, you know what? It's just probably going to be that way for us. Now, here's a passage that I think most of us probably aren't incredibly familiar with, would probably leave off of our favorite reading text and our memorization text. However, I wonder if this text is good, maybe ought to be, the life text for every believer living in the United States of America. And that's James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. If you got your Bibles, you can turn there. Let me read it. James 5, 1 through 6. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. One of the things that James is going to point out here is that our use of money is the reflection of our faith. The way we think about it, the way we want it, acquire it, possess it, use it, is a barometer for how committed we are to Christ. Our commitment to cash is a reflection or barometer of how committed we are to Christ. And so he starts with this proposition right there in, in verse 1, kind of in, in your face, right? He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, this is fascinating text. He hasn't said anything bad. It's not a sin to be rich, right? But he hasn't even accused him of anything yet. And he's basically saying, stinks to be you, rich people. You know, I mean, he's he's trying to get their attention and he's getting their attention because that'll do it. Now, is it sinful to be rich? No, no, let's, let's just make sure we put this in context. But, 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 uh, you gotta have to hear me close today or we're gonna get all kinds of, uh, uh, aberrant things. Um, this point in history, there were some rich believers in the church. Think of Nicodemus and Zacchaeus. There were rich believers in, in the church. But as you think of, um, Matthew, as you think of Zacchaeus, often they got their wealth through shady ways. In the Old Testament, a lot of wealthy people, but the wealthy people got their their acquisitions of land, that's just the big thing, uh, in kind of a 
the shady way. They took advantage of people who were hurting. They took advantage of people who were really struggling. They, they, they offered interest. They offered, you know, loans to these people at exorbitant interest rates. And they, 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 they just gained so much. Keeping in mind at this point in history, there are two sets of rules. One would say that is today, but definitely here. There was a set of, of laws and rules for the common people, but then there was a different set for the powerful people. And it was normal. It was just ex- expected, I think, of the wealthy and of the poor that the wealthy would exploit. That's just the way you did it. That that's how you got your, your cash and that's how they used their networking and that's, that's how it went. So there was this, this, often in scripture, rich is synonymous with evil. Not always, but often. But here he's referring to all the wealthy, right? And this is, this is the reason, because James is going to let us know, wealth is, is not evil, but it's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. There, there's something about money, isn't there? That you, you start touching it and seeing it and smelling it. It kind of gets into your system. And it can kind of turn the most orthodox, Rabbi, into, into, it, can, it can do, it does stuff to us. And James is saying, if you don't understand that danger, it will destroy you. So this is, this is, this is, we, we ask ourselves, okay, who are the wealthy then? Okay, because, uh, of course, I'm not, you're not wealthy, right? It's someone else. Uh, New York Times 2016, they did a survey. Who's wealthy? And, and, and 27% of the people said folk who make between one and $200,000 a year, those are the wealthy people. 20% said, no, no, no. People who make between two hundred and three hundred thousand are the wealthy people. Reality is, wealthy is always the group that's just above me, right? I mean, if I'm making fifty thousand, right? Is this true? Is this true? If I'm making fifty, the people who make a hundred are the wealthy people. And if I'm making a hundred thousand, no, 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 I've got the bills. You know, there's the people who make the two hundred. They're there, and then it just keeps moving on. If if I'm making three hundred thousand a year, well, if I've got a net worth of a million, see now those guys are are the rich. And if you got net worth of a million, you're saying, well, you know, that's really not that much. I mean, that will just, I mean, if I live in my retirement, that's just barely going to, if it keeps me alive, that's three million. The net worth, that's the guys who are really doing well. And if your net worth is three million, what are you saying? You're saying, you know what? I can't afford one of those yachts like down in the Caribbean. Those things are like 45 million. Those are the wealthy people. I'm just kind of middle of the road a person. But, but, a thief, Investopedia said this. Let's, just, let's think about this for a minute. They said that the net worth of the average man or woman living on the continent of Africa right now is $411. The average net worth of the man or woman living on the continent of India right now, $608. The average net worth of an Eastern European, $11,000. The average net worth of a man or woman living in the United States of America, $49,500. Forbes did a uh, study of 2015. They determined that there's $153.2 trillion in personal wealth. 
It's not owned by governments. That's owned by individual people scattered throughout the world. $153.2 trillion. That's a lot of money. That's enough to pay the national debt of every single country in the world three times. That's a lot of cash owned by individuals. And so you say, well, well how is that wealth distributed? Well, top five countries that, that uh, rank there... The fifth country, Germany, a citizen of Germany, the citizens of Germany own 3.9% of the world's wealth. Uh, number four, uh, United Kingdom. Uh, citizens in United Kingdom own 5.6% of the world's wealth. Number three, Japan. Uh, Japanese citizens own 8.9% of the world's wealth. Number two, China. Uh, Chinese citizens own 10.5% of the world's wealth. Number one, we would, of course, assume it's the United States, and it is. The United States own 41.6% of the world's wealth. That's individual citizens. Listen, we compare ourselves to other people. We might say, well, I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. But 99% of the people in the world, if they compare themselves to you, they're going to say you are very wealthy. If you are making $34,000 a year, you are in the upper 1% of the world. And so 99% of the people in the world would look at, at most all of us and say, wealthy, very wealthy. So the, the words of James here, this is not just for somebody who can afford the $45 million yacht. This is for us to deal with, to wrestle with. And so there's this idea of, of uh, how dangerous wealth is because uh, how you use your money reflects uh, your faith. James gives us four tests as you get in this passage, kind of like the money tests. The first test, generosity versus hoarding. Generosity versus hoarding. Verse 2, he says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, look at that for a second. What have they done wrong in these two verses? All they've done is lay up treasure. And you might say, well, I thought saving was a good thing, for crying out loud. Isn't saving a good thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Proverbs 13, 11, Proverbs 20, 21. There are some passages that talk about saving, but you've got to keep this in mind. Okay? This, is, this is important to understand all of Scripture. There are texts that talk about saving, and we need to obey those. But there are many more texts that warn against hoarding than there are texts that command us to save. And so there's just this fine line between saving and between hoarding. And sometimes it's easy to forget. Sometimes we can move over thinking, well, we're just just saving. There's this fine line. If, if we're stockpiling, as it were, for necessities, for a survival, that's one thing. But once we start stockpiling for luxury, once we start stockpiling for security, once we start stockpiling for for prestige. When Jesus' disciples came to him one time and said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, you pray like this, give us this day our daily bread, right? Not our monthly bread, not for a year, but, but I'm content if you give me daily bread. I'm thinking Jesus is thinking about numbers. Remember their Old Testament, they're in the wilderness, they can't, they can't grow a whole lot in the desert, right? 
And so God is going to give them manna every day. Every morning they're going to wake up and bread is going to be on the ground. And there are some interesting commands about how they're supposed to harvest this bread. Uh, One of the commands is take just enough for that day. And they're told, don't try to stockpile. And sure enough, you know the story, there's some knucklehead people who are thinking, yeah, well, you know, God's given us this today, but there may not be any tomorrow. And therefore, I need to, I mean, God made this get ticked off at us, and so I just need to stockpile this. And so, of course, they did, and, and, and exactly what Moses said would happen, happened. It rotted, began to stink, where if they would have taken it in, it would have hurt them desperately. And, and I think that's the idea here, that when, when you stockpile, because maybe God's not going to come through. And I've got, this is going to be my plan A. Now, God will be plan B if this falls through or if I run out. No, but, but, so God is there and that's good. Maybe he'll help me out, but I'm going to stockpile just in case. That's the, that's the idea. That's where, where the, the thought is. Uh, John Wesley, this is, uh, now Wesley was the founder of, right, the Methodist Church, uh, Anglican, priest, uh, pastor guy, not making a lot of money on the front end. But by the end of his life, he wrote a lot of things. Uh, they sold like hotcakes. He started this, this, this whole new movement. By the end of his life, he was making a lot of bucks. Wesley, when he made 30 pounds, the year he made 30 pounds, he would give three away. When he made 40 pounds, he gave 10 away. When he made 70 pounds, he gave 40 away. His, his best year, when he made 1,400 pounds, he gave 1,370 away. Because Wesley knew that, 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 st- that stockpiling, hoarding, that's not the deal. If God gives you more, he's given you more so that you can bless others, so that you can build the kingdom, so you can invest in other people and other things. This was the mindset. It's not that my standard of living just follows my increases, but quite often our, our standard of living is just a little bit ahead of our increases, and just kind of hoping that the increases catch up. But, but, but Wesley realizes that for a believer, for one whose citizenship is in heaven and not down here, that ought not to be the way it is. It's it's a whole different it's a whole different deal. Money is dangerous. Money can 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 change and rewrite our our, our values and, and priorities and, and, and understanding. It, it can affect our relationship with God in a major way. So here's the first test: generosity versus hoarding. Let me just ask you: How much are you giving away, or are you just stockpiling? what James would put out. It's a tough passage. Goal is not to make anybody feel guilty. Goal is not, I mean, I'm, I'm with everybody else. Goal is not to make any, any of us feel guilty. That's certainly not James's idea because these people are not, they've scattered around. He's getting nothing out of this. But he just knows that this is poison, can be poison to the soul. This is, uh, beware, beware. Second test. Integrity, not dishonesty, or integrity, not thievery. I've not been able to figure out the right way to say this one. Uh, uh, equitable, but not, uh, you know, not, not one-sided. Fair, not false. What, what, let me just read the text. You kind of put your own thing in there. Um, 
Verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept back, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Money's dangerous, right? It can get into us and cause us to do stuff we would not ever do and cause us to negotiate our, our integrity and, and honesty, things we would not th- think about. I, mean, I don't know if these people were planning on, on uh, ripping off other folk per se as much as they just wanted to, to keep their stockpile growing. Different ways we do this, right? Uh, if you're an employer, obviously direct turnover in Scripture here. If you are an employer... And you're ripping off, let's say you've got some illegals working for you, some immigrants working for you. What are they going to do, right? They, they got, you got them over a barrel, so you rip them off. Or maybe somebody that you know, it's tough getting a job. It's tough getting a job in the Erie market these days. They should just be lucky they have one and rip them off and put a little pressure. Now, I'm not talking about having the hard conversation with somebody who's not producing. That's the right thing to do. But but somebody who is, but just because you've got the leverage, ripping them off. Perhaps an application as well is if you are into sales, maybe selling products or you're selling service, and you're selling one thing, but you're delivering something else. You know, you told them, I use these materials, when really you didn't use these materials. You charged them for these materials. Or, or, or you, you, you sell them a service that you know they really can't access. It doesn't come that easy. Or maybe you sell your car and you forgot to tell them about those brakes. Well, caveat emptor, right? Let this guy worry about it. That's going to be his, his thing. Oh, well, you know what? That's just the way it is. It's a used car. He needs to deal with it. Um, how about this? You go to the, you go to the uh, cracker barrel. And you pray publicly, and then you stiff the waitress or waiter. You know, please just don't, 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 just pray silently at that point, right? Don't, you, my, my mom was a waitress, and I realized, and you know this, right? If someone's working, they're, they're, they're subject to tips, they don't make minimum wage. How hard they work. And to rip them off. God notices this. God's taking notes, and according to the text, you know what? One day, he's going to call us on it. The, the, the test here is a test of integrity, uh, not thievery. You know, another p- person that we can rip off, I can call him a person, is God. Haggai, this is interesting. The, Cyrus sends the uh, Israeli exiles coming out of poverty. He sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, right? He gives them lots of resources to rebuild the temple because he wants them to build a cool temple to God so that the Hebrew God is happy with him. That's his, that's his goal. So he sends them back with lots of resources. They get there and they lay the foundation and then they decide, ah, let's, we just don't need to keep doing this. So Haggai won. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So God sends a prophet Haggai. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know, a lot of of, of theologians really focus in on this paneled houses. This is a word for very exquisite wood. And you got to ask yourself, where did these guys get this? 
Because they left slaves in Persia. They've got nothing. They're coming to deep poverty in Jerusalem where there's nothing. Where did they get this kind of resources? Oh, is it maybe this is the stuff that Cyrus sent with them to build the temple? They used it instead to build their own houses? Um, Tony Evans is an African-American pastor in Dallas. He was the first African-American to graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary with a, a Ph.D., Doctor of Theology. Very difficult degree to get. Several years I was listening to him. Um, I don't know if it was on the radio or if I was listening to a tape, but he was preaching Sunday morning to his congregation. And I can't mimic uh, Tony Evans, but, but, he, but, he, but he said... Um, it's come to my attention that in our parking lot this morning, there is a stolen car. One of y'all stolen a car, brought it to church this morning. And now there's like, oh, and he says, and it's come to my attention that there's not just one. There's several. There is a, a ring, an auto thievery ring by several people in our congregation. And oh, type thing. And then he went on. He said, and it's come to my attention that there is stolen jewelry being worn right now by some of y'all who are sitting here. And some who are sitting here this morning are wearing stolen clothing. And he went on and on and on. And he says, let me read this. So he reads Malachi chapter 3, where God is speaking, right? And God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And Evans went on to, to, to say, you know, God has given us uh, a portion of money, the tithe, in order for us to give it to him. But instead of us giving it to him, his money that he's given to us to give back to him, we've taken it and went to the auto dealer and bought something for us. We've taken the money that's supposed to go to God that he's given us for give back to him, and we've taken it to the electronic gadget store, and we bought something for us. So we've taken it to the clothing store, the shoe store, and we bought things for us. So this is, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable, okay? Is it possible that here at FAC, in the parking lot, we've got stolen cars here today? Stolen boats represented, stolen second homes, stolen vacations, stolen computers, stolen classes, stolen entertainment. Things that God has given us money to be used for his kingdom. But we don't have the money to tithe, to give back. See, we've got it for our new hairdo, and we've got it for all these things that we've got to do, and places we've got to go, and things we've got to But we really don't. We would if we could, but we don't. I wonder if God would say, you know what? You're robbing, you're robbing me. To think about. James requires that we think about it. 
may not come up with any clear answers. Because the, how much is enough? How much is, is too much, right? The Bible doesn't answer that. The Bible is, is, is all generations, all kinds of cultures. It's, it, it doesn't deal with that. But just because it doesn't, doesn't mean you and I don't have a responsibility to deal with that, to challenge every expenditure, to ask the questions. Because if we are asking that question throughout our, our life here, I think we're probably going to be okay. But it's when we just forget and say, you know, I'm not going to answer, ask that question. Third test that, that James puts out is the restraint, not indulgence test. Verse 5, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In cattle, I'm not a, a rancher person, but my understanding is cattle are fattened because they're going to slaughter. And hogs are fattened because slaughter day is coming. And he says, says, you thought you were just just giving yourself all these extra things, but actually what you were doing is you're prepping yourself for a day of judgment, is the picture that James... Now, some of us are, are not... Indulgent. We we give. We're very restraining. You know. We we are very frugal, and that's not a bad thing. Frugal is is a good thing, as long as we're frugal properly, right? You you know, right? That sometimes frugality is not an issue of godliness. It's an issue of stinginess, right? So sometimes I just want to guard my pile, and I don't want to spend any money on those other things because I've got to guard my. That's my security. That's my my significance. I'm something because of my pile. My pile needs to be bigger and deeper and longer and wider and heavier. And I just don't want to spend money. Sometimes frugality is just stinginess. But when we're frugal, we sacrifice. We don't buy other things for ourselves so that we can invest in the kingdom of God. So that we can pull a Wesley. So that we can see... uh, Kids who are in danger of being sold into sex slavery, we're going to protect those guys. And therefore, I have to do without to get that. Oh, well, we're going to see kids discipled. And we're going to see evangelistic initiatives happen. And we're going to see um, different people in, in the, the congregation reached and, and, and brought to maturity in Christ. And if I've got a sacrifice to see that happen, then by golly, let's make that happen. Now, if we're, we're, we're sacrificing, we're frugal for that reason... I, I think James is like, oh yeah, but, but, but sometimes we're not. Now, we said that how you use money reflects your faith, right? But, but perhaps more important, how you use money makes your faith. I mean, faith is fluid. Faith is not like you got it, you don't got it. Faith is, is fluid in, in every decision you make. I would say every decision you make regarding money is going to shrink and shrivel your faith or it's going to build your faith. In Amos chapter 4, I think we've got that. It says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. This is just entertainment. Next slide. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph, it's, it's, it's Israel. The nation of Israel has fallen into sin. And these people are so involved in their luxuries, their indulgences, 
that they don't care, really. This is what James knows, that wealth is dangerous. And when we feed this covetous monster, it doesn't just satisfy the covetous monster. The covetous monster grows. And when we feed the, 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 the desire for wealth, we, des- we feed the desire for flesh pampering, then spirit uh, sensitivity shrivels up. These guys can't even be conscious of what's going on in the nation sin-wise because they are too involved in indulgences. What we do with the money makes our faith. When you get to a place where you're going, I know I need to do this with my money, and if I do this, I can't do that. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to trust God and do this. I'm just going to... Something happens when you make that decision in here. Your, Your faith grows just a little bit bigger. And your sensitivity to things of God just grows just a little bit keener. And the world's grasp on your heart just gets a little bit looser. Your faith is, is, is impacted by what you do. Proverbs chapter 30, a guy by the name of Agar is praying a prayer, right? He says this, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Well, I don't know if I'd ever pray that one, but Agar's praying that one. Give me, don't give me riches, God. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Now, he's going to tell us why he doesn't want God to give him riches. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Agar realizes, the author of Proverbs 30 realizes that, that our wealth can destroy us. It's dangerous. We live for this sometimes and fight for it. And of course, all the money makes the world go round. We live in this world and so we have to be, uh, use the world's economy and the world's uh, currency, of course. But when we touch it, when we're in it, when we're with it, it can turn us into something. It's dangerous. And Agar says it will destroy our faith. So be careful. Be careful. That's what James is bringing up. He gives his final test. Final test is healing, not hurting. Verse 6, he says, You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Money can be an incredible thing. It can be used to bless all kinds of people. Or we can hurt people with it. We hurt them by uh, withholding those who it is due. Not paying our bills on time. Ripping off somebody that we should be tipping. Ripping somebody else off in the sales room. Um, we hurt them that way. Or we hurt them by hoarding, by not... Uh, causing someone's life to flourish by uh, giving as God has called us to individuals. Um, But I wonder if there's something else James is saying here, because this text where it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, literally it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. Who is the righteous one? I wonder if James is, is thinking back to, to Matthew 25 where Jesus says, as much as you've done it to the least of one of these, you've done it unto me. I wonder if James is, is thinking about how when we hurt the body of Christ by not, by not giving, uh, we hurt the body of Christ. By not giving. I wonder if he's thinking Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of, of, of silver. I wonder if he's thinking of, of the uh, Pharisee's heart where Jesus said that they loved money. That's why Christ is on the cross. He's going to take away their power. He's going to take away their, their wealth. He's going to take away their, their comfortable living. 
He says, when we have that spirit, we have the same spirit that killed Jesus. We have the same spirit that crucified the Lord. So, so what do we do with all this? Matthew 26. Mary comes to Jesus. She's got a vial of perfume. She breaks it. She dumps the whole thing on Jesus' head. Now, this vial of perfume is worth a year's wages, at least. Uh, Some have said this was her entire life's savings. Some had said that this is her dowry. This is how she was going to get married. Some have said this is a family heirloom. It's been passed down, but she opens. She pours the whole thing on Jesus' head. Now, Judas Iscariot's watching this, and he's ticked off. Very, very next passage in Matthew 26. Very, very next passage. Judas goes and sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So you've got these two people. I think it's a mirror. Scripture's given us. You've got Mary, who almost, in a sense, she's adoring Jesus. She's enveloped in who Christ is. She's worshiping him. Money means nothing. She'll give it all for him. And then you've got Judas, who, no, no, money is everything. Jesus is only good as far as how he's going to get Judas stuff. For us, I think we can bounce back and forth. I want to be here, but sometimes I don't think, and I listen to the marketers in in my heart, and I end up over here. That's why it's imperative that we we read this text and say, well, I don't need to be over here. I need to bounce back. I need to to spend, make the decisions I need to make in order to be here. And so here's a question this morning. Are you with Mary, or are you in the Judas category this morning? I, Haggai 1, this is, this is a, a takeaway. Haggai 1, God talks to the Israelites who are struggling with this, and he says, consider your ways. It's easier not to consider them sometimes, right? Way to consider our ways. Go home, pull your checkbook if you're older. If you're a kid, you don't know what that is. But go get your bank statement or get your transactions printed out from your Quicken or from your Mint or something. And just stare at where your money has gone. Am I putting all my money into me? Into where I've been? Into what I'm doing now? Into where I'm going? Is it all about me? Where am I doing my cash? Consider your ways, God would say. And then then here's the answer. I think it's in chapter 5, verse 1. I think it's in the verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. Those Those are words of repentance. Those are terms that are that are, are associated with repentance in the, in the Old Testament quite quite often, and so as you you consider your ways, James is saying, repent. Now, now this repentance is something that we're doing. This is this is in present tense. This, this is repentance is something we are doing between now and the time we get to heaven. Because you know what, we're going to bounce between the Mary and Judas multiple times, and every time we catch ourselves here, we've got to weep and how, we've got to howl. We've got to repent. That's not where I want to be, Lord. I want to be here, but the pull is so hard. Would you help me get there? Difficult text, but. Reality is that the way we use money will reflect our faith. The way we use money will make our faith. If the world is going to be impacted by the church, it's got to be impacted by a church who is not committed, first and foremost, to mammon. It's not living for the pile. It's not not seeking their security, their significance in money. 
but in, but in Christ. Would you pray with me?